On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. As we continue to think about the life of Jesus during what we call Holy Week, we're going to focus not so much on his friends or indeed his disciples, but his opponents. I mean, who were they, Mike? Hmm. His opponents, surprisingly, weren't Rome. His opponents, rather, were those who held religious power in the land of Israel, uh, particularly the Sadducees who controlled the temple, the Pharisees and the scribes who controlled scripture and understanding it. In other words, it, it, it was the religious folk. It, it wasn't ordinary people. It wasn't even Rome. In fact, the gospel seemed to go out of its way at times to show that it wasn't Rome that put him to death. So it was from among his own people, the religious leaders who were threatened by him and his message because they feared their authority and their power being undermined. Perhaps to understand those people, we've come back to this amazing model of the city of Jerusalem, as it would have been in the time of Jesus. It's an enormous scale model uh, near the uh, government buildings, major museum here as well. Uh, I mean, just give us an idea of the scale and just describe what we're looking over, because we're looking from a kind of bird's eye view over it, aren't we? Yeah, we're looking at one of my favourite sites here when I bring groups to the Holy Land. This fantastic model of Jerusalem as it would have been in the time of Jesus. Now, all the key buildings that archaeology has confirmed um, are reproduced exactly where they are and how they were. Some of the smaller buildings are representative because we're not quite sure where they were, but... We are sitting, as it were, on the south side of the city, looking due north. And it's clear, isn't it, David, as we look at this, there's one feature in particular that dominates the whole city. Over on the eastern side there, halfway up, this massive platform of the temple that Herod the Great began to build and that was completed after he died, with the temple sanctuary itself towering over, looking down over the Kidron Valley on the east and the Mount of Olives that would have risen up on the other side. So this is huge, this is dominating, and it actually is a picture of how the religious leaders dominated Israel's life in the time of Jesus. Just to the north of that great big temple platform area is the fortress of Antonia, the Roman headquarters here in the city. Built, abutted right up to the temple walls, with its four square towers on each corner, towering over the temple. So Rome could have its soldiers up there looking down onto the temple because they feared that was always where riots could start. If we go over to the western side of the city and the walls there, we can see towering up Herod's palace. As usual, a very grand thing. Herod didn't believe in doing things by halves, did he? So at the western side, there's Herod's palace on the eastern side, the temple and the Antonia fortress. Right down here below us, just in the southeast corner, is the original part of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, where David made his capital, still called the city of David to this day, where he would have had his palace. 
And of course, he wasn't able to build a temple in his lifetime, but he did buy the threshing floor of Arauna the Hittite, just to the north of the city where his son Solomon would build a temple in due course. Just down below as well, to the left of the city of David, we can see the Tyropean Valley, along which ran a road from the Pool of Siloam at the bottom where pilgrims would come and wash and bathe on arriving in the city and make their way up to the temple, reaching those great steps that led to the Holder Gates. They're put into the walls at ground level and you would go through those gates, having washed yourselves again in many of the ritual baths that are around in those areas that we've looked at in a previous episode, go up under the temple platform, climbing these steps and would suddenly appear in that great courtyard and see that temple dominating everything. We can also see two sets of walls here. We can see an inner set of walls from the time of Jesus and an outer set of walls from when the city developed later. And just behind that inner set of walls to the north of the Antonia Fortress is where Golgotha would have been, the place of execution, just outside the city walls of those times. So we've got this fantastic display here of how the city would have looked in the time of Jesus. So the opponents, as we've referred to them, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, what would their role have been and where would they have sort of operated from, looking at this model even? Well, let's start with the ones that would have operated from here. Uh, and that was the, the Sadducees. Now, we keep coming across them, don't we, when we're reading our Bible. The Sadducees were the priestly families. They were the priests who controlled what happened there in the temple. They were the ones who offered up the sacrifices. Now, the Sadducees were a, a much, much smaller group than the Pharisees. And yet, in many ways, they were much more significant because they were the aristocratic families that controlled the high priesthood and the temple and everything that happened there. And they got very wealthy out of it, by the way, which is why they got so upset when Jesus came and overturned the money tables of the money changers and upset the tables of those who were selling sacrifices because they took a cut out of all of that. That's how they made their money. So when Jesus challenges those things, he is challenging them. Uh, as far as they're concerned. The name Sadducee, we're not sure where it comes from, but most scholars seem to think it derived from Zadok, who was the high priest of Solomon. And of course, having an ancestry that went all the way back to Zadok uh, was a cause of, of great pride for them. So we've got aristocratic, influential, powerful uh, people who have the religious power in their hands who are very proud of their ancestry. Now, th there were some significant differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and we'll come to the Pharisees in, in just a moment. But first of all, the Sadducees, the priestly families, only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as God's word. And as such, they excluded belief in any doctrines that wasn't included in those books. So one of the big things that that excluded, and we encounter this in the gospel stories, is that they didn't believe in resurrection. Why? Because it's not found there in the first five books of the Bible. We only find that in other books. 
Second thing that marked them out was they believed strict purity was incumbent only on priests. Why? Because of the very holy special work that they did. Whereas the Pharisees, of course, believed it was incumbent on everyone. So there's a point of tension between them. And one further point of difference between them and the Pharisees was the Pharisees hated the presence of Romans here in this land. But the Sadducees were very, very happy to cooperate with Rome. Why? Because they kept them in power. And that explains why when Jesus came in upsetting things that went on in the temple, they were so disturbed. It's why we find Caiaphas saying it's better for one man to die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And to say, if we let this man carry on like this, then, you know, the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation, we read in John's Gospel. Our place, they were referring to this building here, the temple. If we let trouble start with this rabbi Jesus, the Romans are going to come down hard. They'll end up taking away our place, this temple of ours. They'll end up destroying our nation and just making it like any other part of the Roman Empire. So they were happy to cooperate with Rome because Rome kept them in their place and kept them in power. These different groups clearly didn't get on with Jesus, but did they get on with each other? Uh, Normally, no, Um, but they did come together in these final weeks of Jesus's life to gang up on him. It's that old saying of my enemy's enemy is my friend. And towards the end of this period of Jesus's life, they become friends for the sole purpose of getting rid of Jesus. But normally they didn't get on at all. And the Pharisees despised this group of Sadducees because they thought they were so casual in their view of God's word and God's law. So what were the Pharisees so hot and bothered about when it comes to Jesus? (laughs) Well, let's think about the Pharisees because they keep cropping up and have cropped up often, haven't they, in the story that we've been following. First of all, it's really important to remember being a Pharisee was a lifestyle, not a job. So you weren't a Pharisee as your job, like you would be a priest, for example. So Pharisees were mainly middle-class merchants and traders. Um, They were people, you know, in that middle range of life who were doing quite well for themselves, thank you. But being a Pharisee was about a lifestyle you adopted, a lifestyle of meticulous obedience, not just to the law as it was revealed in the scriptures, but to all those myriads of extra laws that the scribes, the other group, who were responsible for not only copying scripture but interpreting it, they were the ones who meticulously sought to keep and maintain all those laws. And that's why they got so annoyed with Jesus, because he wouldn't keep all their little extra laws that they'd added on to the law. And the thing is, Pharisees believed at this time that if every Jew only kept the law for one day, Messiah would come. And here's this rabbi, in effect, not only breaking the laws as far as they were concerned, but teaching people to do the same as well. And so their problem with Jesus was the very things he was teaching was stopping Messiah from coming. 
course, it's ironic, isn't it? Because there was Messiah right in front of them. And how many of these laws were there then? Oh, there were thousands of them. Um, In terms of actual laws in the Old Testament, the rabbis identified 613 commandments that Israel had to keep. But what these Pharisees and scribes had done was to unpack and expand those laws. Now, as I've hinted at in a previous episode, do you know, this started out with really good heart. It goes all the way back to when Israel was taken into exile by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And while they were in captivity, God's people had plenty of time to think. They were there for 70 years, the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied. And while they were there, they asked the most fundamental question, how on earth did we end up here? And as they looked back over their history and even recorded their history, because it's the history books of the Old Testament that were pulled together from earlier sources at this time, they saw there was one simple reason for why they'd ended up in exile. They had been disobedient to God's word. It was as clear as a bell. And so they resolved while they were in exile that when they went back eventually to the promised land, if they never wanted to end up in exile again, what they needed to do was to keep God's law. But the thing is, they became so fearful of breaking God's law that in the decades and centuries that followed, they started to put what they called hedges around the law. Now, what does a hedge do? It protects you from, you know, getting where you shouldn't be. And so around this law of six days you shall work and on the seventh you shall rest, they started to put a hedge around it, describing exactly what work was and wasn't, so that you didn't end up breaking the law and we end up in exile again. And so they begin to itemize what is work. Can I do this? Can I do that? And so by the time of Jesus, some of the miracles that we've looked at, Jesus, for example, mixing spittle with dry mud to make a paste to put on the man's eyes for healing, um, they saw that as work. You know, there you are, moving your arms around, mixing your spittle with the mud, and then you're telling guys to get up and carry their mat on the Sabbath. And they were so deeply offended by this because it broke their laws. You know, he was Jesus, in effect, undermining their authority. And if there's one thing that people in authority still to this day don't like, is you doing something that looks like you're undermining their authority. The other group you mentioned, the scribes, I mean, they must have been a fairly harmless lot. <laughs> yeah, if only. Uh, scribe, what does a scribe do? Well, a scribe is a, a writer, a copyist. And that's how these scribes had begun. Now, I just mentioned the exile. And when Israel was taken into exile in Babylon, of course, they were far away from their temple. So all those priests who had worked in this temple, whose model we see below, are suddenly unemployed. Because the only place you can offer sacrifices is in the temple in Jerusalem. So what do all these unemployed priests do? Well, what many of them started to do was to copy their scriptures. They'd obviously taken their scriptures with them into exile, but what they start to do is to copy them, to become scribes. 
but many of them became not just copiers of this law, but also interpreters of it. It's a bit like, you know, preaching from the Bible today and, and doing a, so what does that mean for us today? And the scribes became those who interpreted the law, while the Pharisees were those who implemented the law. So those were the three main groups that you would find buzzing around, not just here in Jerusalem, um, but, you know, throughout the land, because priests, there were so many of them by New Testament times that they came on duty on a rota and could have lived anywhere across the land and would come up for their two weeks of duty at the temple that we're looking at over there. But with the scribes then, if they were the interpreters or thought of themselves as that, Jesus's interpretation of the law was always going to be very different. Yeah, absolutely, because of course, um, Jesus always went for the heart of what lay behind the law. And they were far more concerned with the letter of the law and not just the letter of the law, but their letter of the law, their interpretation of it. And so they often came into conflict, often ended up as opponents because Jesus wouldn't line up with their strict interpretation of these myriad of extra interpretations. And the trouble is they move from being interpretations to laws. So very often in the Gospels, we'll find um, the scribes and Pharisees challenging Jesus, why do your disciples disobey the law? But when you look at it carefully, it's not the law that they're disobeying, but their interpretations of the law. Could you just give us an example from the Bible, just to illustrate the extent to which they were actually opponents for Jesus? Yeah, well, you know, maybe just take one at random from um, this final week, Holy Week, as we now call it when you know Jesus has gone into the temple and it's in the final week and in Matthew 21 23 we read Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him by what authority are you doing things he asked who gave you this authority really interesting question isn't it because as far as they were concerned they were the only people who had authority here. And Jesus, of course, was taking his authority from his Father in heaven. And uh, Jesus will go on to respond to them about that. You know, I'll ask you a question. If, if you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So it was about authority. They felt their authority was being undermined. Um, another example, just a chapter on, uh, is in Matthew chapter 23, which again comes from that period of the last week of Jesus's life. And in Matthew 23, we read, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses's seat. So you must obey them and do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help them. 
Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. And they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. And he'll go on then to list seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for how you've lived. So he's challenging there. Again, not the law of Moses that lay as the foundation of what they were teaching, but what they had made of it. So how does Jesus deal with his opponents? <laughs> Good question, because that has a lot of relevance for us today, doesn't it? Well, um, do you know what? Here's the first thing that strikes me, David. He didn't let them get under his skin. And so often today when we feel opposed, whether it's in the workplace or in family or even in church, you know, we get rattled, don't we? We get irate. We feel like we've got to do something. And so Jesus refused to let opponents get under his skin. Why? Because he was secure in who he was and what he'd come to do. And, and when we are secure in who we are in Jesus, we don't need to let people and what they say rattle us. So that would be the first thing I would say. He, he didn't let them get under his skin. The second thing I'd say is that he handled his opponents in a whole number of different ways. As we read the Gospels, we will find there are times when he simply ignores what they're going on about. There are times when he will engage in discussion and debate with them. There are times when he challenges the basis of their belief or will ask them a question to try and get them to think deeper about why it is um, that they believe what they believe. In fact, searching questions was a, a key way of how Jesus handled things. And, you know, one of the things I think for us today, very often as Christians, we are put in places where, you know, we have opponents or can be undermined or opposed uh, dismissed, well, you, you know, you don't believe that in the 21st century, do you? And I think if you can have one or two searching questions up your sleeve to be able to throw it back to people so that you can say, well, that's interesting you feel like that. Can I ask you, how long is it since you've thought that? Is that how you've grown up or is that something you've taken on board in recent years because that's what everybody now thinks. And I've had that conversation with people sometimes and eventually got them round to saying, well, yeah, I suppose it is because that's what the rest of our culture is saying at the moment. And you're able to say, well, you know, it is worth you stopping and thinking whether you believe that because it's true or simply because everybody else says it. So having that searching question is a way um, that Jesus often used to deal with opponents or would-be opponents. So first, he didn't let it get under his skin. Second, he has a whole different number of ways of approaching them, including this, having a couple of questions up your sleeve. And third, I think this is the most important thing. He constantly pushed back into God himself. You know, one of his priorities was the busier life got, the more he needed to spend time with his Father in heaven. He'd get up early, he'd go up mountains, he'd do whatever he needed to do just to get some quiet where he could talk to God and listen to God. And I, I think, you know, Jesus would say to us today, when, when you're faced with opponents today, whatever shape they might take, 
push into God, get back to God, take it to your father. Ask father what you should do. Ask father, how would you have me respond to this? How would you have me turn the other cheek here? What, what does that mean in this situation? So I think those three things are ways that Jesus dealt with opponents that are still just as relevant for us today. You've reminded me of a story somebody told me recently where they said, if you're talking to somebody who says they don't believe in God, ask them this question, what kind of God do you not believe in? I think that's powerful and that's a great example of having a question up your sleeve. And that's brilliant, of course, because there are all sorts of gods that they don't believe in. And that just, I think that's a brilliant question. That's one of the ones that need to go up our sleeve without a doubt. It opens up the conversation. And I was thinking, though, if you addressed it in a slightly different way to these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and said, well, you believe in God, but what kind of God do you believe in? For the Pharisees, it would have been a God of law, a God that you have to obey in minute detail. And hey, listen, I believe we need to obey God. But, you know, for them, you obey God by obeying their rules. For the scribes, you know, it would have gone the same way. For the Sadducees, you know, the sort of God you need to believe in is, is a God where you need to come here and, and offer your sacrifices to him. And the interesting thing about all, all of those groups, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they were all really about a power grab. They were all really saying, you can't get to God unless you do it our way and do it according to our rules and parameters. In fact, it just hits me again, just as I look out to that model of the temple there that dominates this model of the city. You know, originally when God gave the commandments about offering sacrifices, it's very interesting. If you read closely for yourself the first few chapters of Leviticus, it's clear that you, the sinner, were the one who was supposed to not only bring the sacrifice to God, but offer it to God. I've just turned to Leviticus chapter one and it says here, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he, the sinner, is to offer a male without defect. He, the sinner, must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He, the sinner, is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He, the sinner, is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. So you actually slit its throat. Why? To bring home to you that the wages of sin is death. And then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides. But by New Testament times, we know that the priests had abrogated to themselves that power to actually make the sacrifice. They wanted the whole thing. One time, people had offered the animal, they'd simply collected the blood and taken it to the altar. Something that only they could do. But the thing is about people who have power, they always want more of it. And those Sadducees wanted absolute power. They wanted you to know your sins cannot be forgiven unless I offer the sacrifice for you. Sadly, that's sometimes how priests, clergy, pastors, have been in church history, you know. You come through me or you don't come at all. And it's very sad because that's just repeating what was done down there by the Sadducees. So all three really were power hungry 
um, they wanted you to know you couldn't get to God unless you came to God through them. Despite the opposition that Jesus faced then from all sides, and particularly from the religious groups, it didn't ultimately stop his mission. Absolutely not. The whole of the story of Holy Week is that Jesus relentlessly pursued the path that Father had laid out before him. And nothing from those power bases down there, not the Sadducees and the temple, not the Pharisees and the scribes in their religious hubs, not the power of Rome represented by the Antonia fortress, none of them would be able to stop that progress towards the cross and ultimately towards the empty tomb. Because really all power bases and no power bases before the power of him who brought all things into being. And what would you take away as you look at the way Jesus dealt with his opponents? I think I'd take away, don't be afraid of them. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, keep going back to God with the issue and let God vindicate you. Just like God vindicated Jesus here in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Just pray for us now, Mike. Lord, we pray today, especially for all who are facing opponents, wherever that might be, and who deeply feel the burden and the pain of it. We ask that they would remember that you too faced opponents and that you are with them as they face theirs. And we pray that you would help them to handle themselves in godly ways, even as you did. And most of all, Lord, we ask that you would come to their rescue in the name of Jesus. And for all of us, when we face opponents in our lives, help us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not letting them get under our skin, but constantly pushing back into you and asking you how you would have us respond. Because we ask this together, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises.